The title of the series, The Me Marriage Myth. The Me Marriage Myth. The Me Marriage is a, a trend that, whether you've heard it identified like that, that's really the reality of what marriage is, I mean, how marriage is viewed today. Uh, the Me Marriage. And just saying times have changed and the definition of what is a good marriage is different. Which brings me to, to raise a question. When we look at the challenges in marriage, here's a couple of the things that are... Um, we see as, as uh, challenges that, that we find. And, and, but the first growing trend in our culture and why I think this is a big deal for us to talk about um, marriage is marriage being redefined. Marriage redefined and therefore devalued. When you, define, when you redefine marriage uh, to no longer represent what is ancient, historic, timeless, uh, the timeless sanctity of the covenant commitment of a man and a woman to one another for life, the value of marriage is diminished. When you redefine something, the original definition is devalued and it no longer is relevant. And we see that statistically having borne out in other cultures, certainly in Europe, that have redefined marriage way before the U.S., we saw a rapid decrease in the number of people that were getting married. Uh, In our own country, 18 to 29-year-olds in the U.S., um, over the last, well, from 2004 to 2014, uh, are th- th- we saw a 10% decline in uh, marriages between 18 to 29-year-olds. And then with 30-somethings uh, who are married, there's a decline, about 10%, also about um, 30-somethings who are married. So the percentage of those living together has increased significantly, nearly doubling from 7 to 13%. Here's a statistic that kind of shows you how this plays out, a Gallup poll survey that shows um, those, the top line is uh, those single and never married going from 40, 52% in 2004 to 64% in 2014. So less people are getting married. And then you have uh, those currently married, 29% down to 16%. And then those uh, living with a partner actually among the 18 to 22-year-olds has stayed fairly level in this one Survey, And that's a whole nother subject, not going to get into, but I'll just say that the statistics on that, because a lot of people, because they're afraid to, to end up like their parents and they don't, so they want to, you know, kind of let's figure stuff out ahead of time. Let's, let's try things out. And statistically, that's not a good plan. The number of marriages that succeed going that route um, are with the, the numbers are in and, and that doesn't uh, help. Um, so decline in traditional marriage. Secondly, um, there's also increased pressure to, extend marital rights for any loving relationship. If you say that there should be, uh, it should be legal for two people of the same gender to get married, then um, how can you possibly, once you redefine it and you change the definition, how can you possibly say it's wrong for somebody to have multiple spouses? How can you say it's wrong for somebody to marry somebody that is under the age of 18? How can you say, and these are all real things that are being like tested in courts right now, how can you say that um, it's, it's, it's wrong for there to be a, a, a mother-son relationship or somebody can marry their dog or somebody can marry their robot or somebody can marry, and th- these are happening. These are like real articles out there where people are doing, and you, how do you, once you redefine it, how can you possibly put a boundary and say, well, what's 
right for them because they sincerely love each other should be right for everybody. Well, then it should be right for everybody. If that's your barometer, once you redefine it, then it's devalued and it no longer has the meaning that it once had. And you can't close Pandora's box again. And, and that is happening legally throughout our country. These things are being tested. In fact, the legal age of consent is also being tested. And so uh, people should be able to get married or do whatever they want uh, before the age of 18 is what a lot of people are saying in um, certain communities with different morals values. And so they're trying to reduce that to 15 or 13 or maybe even lower. So that's crazy. I mean, how could it? Again, when you change the boundary, there's a problem. So marriage has been redefined and therefore devalued unless people are getting married. Another one, here's a couple other. This doesn't really necessarily deal directly with marriage, but it has implications. After you redefine that, you also have a problem with parenting being redefined. For instance, Eric Rubel, a lawyer, argued they clearly see that the bright lines of biology and adoption just don't fit today with marriage equality. They understand that couples and families these days are not just mom and dad and husband and wife. Arguing for visitation and custody rights, not just of, for biological and adopted legal parents, but also to the de facto parents, that's the new term, defined as a primary attachment figure. Anybody that your child has a primary attachment to has legal rights to be a de facto parent and they have rights to your child. That's the new definition of parenting. Many courts have simply said that this person looks like a parent and cannot just, you cannot just eliminate them from the child's life. So no longer are rights defined by biological, biological connection to the child or legal, um, like you're the legal guardian. Legal guardianship doesn't matter now. Is what this, is, this is what some of the courts are saying in the Northeast and um, coming to a, a court system near you. Uh, so de facto parents. Another growing trend is the childless by choice. Fewer young adults now say they plan to be parents. According to University of Pennsylvania study, 20, uh, in 2012 survey found that 42% of students plan to have children down from 78% in 1992. Many are even celebrating having vasectomy parties where they may host, instead of having a baby shower, they have a boat shower or a car shower or a house shower. You can, um, you can help them choose the name for their new boat or car instead of for their new baby because they're childless by choice. They don't want to have kids. That doesn't fit into their me marriage plans, de facto parents. The third um, issue we find in our culture that is a growing trend is, is gender redefinition and fluidity. Um, this is uh, such a big deal. Even in our state, in Vanderbilt, um, actually this fall, there was a big push by the faculty to um, help people understand uh, everyone that they meet on campus that you should really ask them in a polite way what their pronouns of choice are. No longer should you ask them. In fact, you should introduce yourself. I'm, I'm David. I prefer the pronouns, um, you know, he, him, uh, his. What are your pronouns of choice? And so you could... You could be um, he, him, his, you could be um, she, her, hers, or you could be zer, zers, zay, zer, zers, or um, you could be them, their, theirs, or you can be zay, his, hers, uh, H-I-R-S, 
There, there's a lot of choices. You should have the freedom to do that, and no longer should we assume. So they're actually asking professors at the beginning of class, not just to ask them, is, do you go by the first name or your middle name, or do you have a nickname, but what are their pronouns? I mean, I would have a hard enough time getting everybody's name straight, but you know, aside from, from trying to... And then they even give you instructions on if you are to offend somebody by using the wrong pronoun, how you should politely apologize for making them uncomfortable and the right way to go about it. It's crazy. Uh, well, the Olympics, again, you talk about uh, all these things. There, there is um, several athletes that are switching genders to try to, to, try to compete in a different um, category. And that's been somewhat welcomed as women have decided to be able to compete with the men. But when men try to compete with the women, that has become a problem because it gives them a significant advantage over the women. Because of testosterone, the way that their body is built, the way that their muscles develop, and all those things... Newsflash, men and women are different biologically, and there is a significant advantage that men have physically in sports. Just look at world records. Most of them um, in whatever sport are set by the men. Not all, but most of them. And so uh, that is just ludicrous. And so even some transgender or um, LGBT athletes, uh, one in particular, a lady who was, was arguing for the fact that as much as she is in full support of the change in our culture to be open to transgender people, she still is a little concerned about how in the world that's ever going to flesh out in sports and Olympics and all those things without giving certain groups uh, distinct advantages over other groups. It's really crazy. Uh, even in our military, Navy SEALs and other special ops groups are, are supposed to be recruiting actively to allow uh, women to be able to serve in those front row um, places. And the problem is they've not found a woman that's been able to go through all of the rigorous uh, training to be able to get it. Maybe at some point that'll happen. That's great. Hopefully they will not redefine the qualifications and lower the bar and therefore put everybody else at risk because people can't perform at the same level as they did once. It's not about who's better or who's worse. It's just about some common sense things. But these are growing trends in our culture, which calls us to come back to, does this really matter? And I want to take you to, I said Genesis 1, but I want to go back to, you don't, You can write this down or you can just listen as I read this. But Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, listen to this passage. Here's the key part. Because the Lord was witness between you and your, the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Answer, godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, he's, he's bringing upon himself um, bad stuff. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. And it's in that passage, that section, he actually says God hates divorce. But I, wanna, I want you to dial into one specific part of that. In verse 15, he says, and what was it that God was seeking? So why does God value marriage and a husband and wife and being faithful to that covenant. What is it that he's seeking? And what he says is godly offspring. It's God's intent that through healthy marriages where a husband and a wife deny the flesh and love one another based upon a covenantal commitment from youth till 
Death alone separates them that they would have descendants as God allows and those descendants would be godly offspring that would be raised with the nurture and admonition of the Lord, raised with a biblical view of reality and that those godly offspring would populate the earth. Hence the command in Genesis chapter 2, 1 and 2, to be fruitful and multiply. And so all of this is really important and you say, well, what does... Redefining marriage have to do with parenting and gender and all this. They let people do what they want. It's not healthy for our community and for culture, certainly for our faith, if you begin messing with things that God has established as the first institution in his creation, in the first relationship he made, husband and wife, and God performed the first marriage. And then command them to be fruitful and multiply. We should be really careful before we go redefining these things. Marriage was established by God for companionship, certainly. He didn't want Adam to be alone. Uh, for reproduction, multiplication, be fruitful and multiply. And then thirdly, it was established for a picture of God's love for his people. And yet all of us certainly desire or know somebody desire or have desire to, to fall in true love we want romance we want a fulfilling marriage we want a relationship most people are longing for that seeking after that Uh, people are searching for the perfect person to give them fulfilling life fulfilling love the the things that they're deeply longing for and and the as we as we look at that marriage once viewed as a binding lifelong partnership built on duty and commitment and distinct social roles for a husband and for a wife. Today, marriage has evolved or devolved, for that matter, into a place where one looks for their emotional and sexual fulfillment and their self-actualization. In other words, you go into it with the desire to find the fulfillment of all your hopes and dreams and to really find out who you're supposed to be and you're going to find fullness and satisfaction. And it's all about trying to get your needs and desires and dreams and hopes met. When these things are not met by the individual, then it is justified and for that matter encouraged that they would simply look elsewhere to find those needs met. And that's the way our culture views marriage. The New York Times columnist Tara Parker Pope wrote an article entitled, I mentioned earlier, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. And she writes, in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership and they want partners who make their lives more interesting, who help each of them attain valued goals. She notes that the best marriages are achieved when an individual is able to find their own satisfaction. So in other words, the chief end of marriage is your own personal satisfaction and fulfillment. It's really about you. It's about me and the me marriage. And when I'm looking for other people and I'm obsessed with the other person, I'm really not going to find the the joy and the peace and the happiness that I really want in a relationship. Um, I'm only going to find if I'm really looking out for myself. And so in a marriage, each spouse should look out for themselves to make sure that they're getting their needs and desires met. So without question, our culture and I would argue many or most Christians are in hot pursuit of the me marriage and the results are not good. In fact, I think that 
uh, when, a, when a couple gets divorced, I think that there, it should be illegal for them to put irreconcilable differences. I just don't think that that should be allowed. I mean, I think it, it, you should make them, I mean, we could give them six choices or 20 choices or whatever. Um, you know, what are the general reasons why people get divorced? But you, they, they should not be given the cop-out of saying irreconcilable differences. They should have to say poor planning, didn't get premarital counseling, had no idea what I was getting. I was incredibly immature. I'm self-absorbed. I'm a narcissist. I'm, you know, whatever. They should have to put the real reasons. In fact, let me give you four reasons for the failure of the me marriage. Four general reasons uh, for the failure of, a, of the me marriage. The first one is living for the moment. A lot of people, marriages fail because they're living for the moment. One or both of the persons fail to understand that there's stages and changes in individuals' development. There's, there's this thing called seasons of life. And things change. And who you are the second you get married is not who you're going to be 10 years from now. There's certain things generally are going to stay the same, but it's going to take more than just the assumption that I like you and you like me and we are in love. And just There's birds flying and music playing and it's so wonderful. And I have these feelings when we're together. It, it, that, uh, it's living for the moment. That moment is not going to stay like that forever, right? And so... Women often experience identity transitions around uh, their 30s, around 30, and then midlife transition around late 30s. Men usually midlife in the 40s. But there's going to be changes in seasons in marriage, and there's a lot more to talk about there, but let's move on. Another category is lack of self-awareness. I think this is huge. There's an inadequate basis for personal identity and security. Identity based on performance or perfectionism or appearances will struggle. Those whose identity are based on performance, perfectionism, appearance will struggle as expectations fall short and those areas begin to fade. You can't always perform on the same level. Be perfect all the time. Look the same way forever. Uh, It's just not going to happen and there's going to be some expectations are going to begin to dwindle. Few couples have more than a superficial under spiritual understanding of a biblically informed marriage and a um, personal or they have a personal identity leaving them with few answers from the one who created the institution. Third category for failed me marriages is the baggage issue. People come into marriage with various dysfunctional family influences And they have unresolved issues in their life or between them and their parents or other past relationships. And and eventually those things are going to affect their marriage. And so you have two people raised in completely different environments and homes with different personalities, different, you know, differences because of gender differences and communication styles and all these different things. And you throw them into a marriage together and they're bringing in a whole lot of baggage that they're often ill prepared to deal with. And so that's a third area. And then a fourth would be lack of preparation. Couples are uh, intermarriage armed with unrealistic expectations, idealistic dreams, superficial knowledge of one another in marriage. And they lack the tools for managing the difficult waters that will lie most definitely ahead. David and Mara Mace said this uh, in a book, we can have better marriages if we really want. They said, most people I counsel have a confused hodgepodge of starry-eyed romanticism. 
superstition, superficial concepts, and laissez-faire, kind of view of marriage, seldom do I find any real understanding of the complexity of the task of bringing two separate individuals into a, get this, delicately balanced coordination of each other's thoughts, feelings, wishes, beliefs, and habit patterns. Few, seldom, do I find a couples with a, with a real understanding of the complexity of the task of bringing two separate individuals into a delicately balanced coordination of each other's thoughts, feelings, wishes, beliefs, and habit patterns. Again, I, I think irreconcilable differences is a significant punt on the realities for why me marriages fail. There's a whole lot more to it than that. Uh, in the mystery of marriage, Mike Mason, he said this, a marriage is not a joining of two worlds, but an abandoning of two worlds in order that a new one may be formed. That's the reality of marriage. Marriage has been reduced to an arrangement that will help people avoid sexual sin or keep the world populated or provide a cure for their loneliness. And the reality is, is that is insufficient and that is really not the biblical reasons for marriage. And when you go into it with those reasons as your, your, your primary foundational push or starry-eyed romance, as, uh, it is not going to often end well. Uh, C.J. Mahaney said, The key question is this. Will we approach marriage... From a God-centered view or a man-centered view. In a man-centered view, we will maintain our marriage as long as our earthly comforts, desires, and expectations are met. In a God-centered view, we preserve our marriage because it brings glory to God and points a sinful world to a reconciling creator. You see, marriage is about the reconciliation of two sinful people to their God and to each other. And it's a process and it's a journey that takes a lifetime. In fact, uh, in sacred marriage, Gary Thomas says that what if we looked at marriage and we, re- we came to the reality that marriage maybe wasn't, the, the chief end of marriage wasn't necessarily to make you happy, but it was to make you holy. What if the goal of marriage wasn't to make you happy, but it was to make you holy? In fact, I would argue that it is in being conformed to the image of Christ and pursuing personal holiness through Jesus that we really find happiness. I think that the, the happiness that we look to for relationships that, that they can never provide, provide is, is a lie to which if we would pursue and understand that God is going to use marriage to conform us to his image, to teach us of our selfishness, to crucify the me part of marriage, then we would really find true happiness. You know, uh, sociologists say that the best year of marriage is often the 34th year. The hardest years of marriage are about 8 to 12 years, 8 to 14 years, but the 34th year is the best. I'm not sure why that is. I think it's maybe it's because you get your 30-year mortgage paid off. Maybe all the kids are out of the house by then. I'm not sure exactly what happens and what's so monumental about the 34th year. I'm thinking at 34 years, Caroline, our youngest, is going to be, um, she'll be 18, I'm pretty sure. So that, that'll probably be a good year, uh, maybe. Uh, maybe it'll be a bad year. Um, I don't know. But um, either way, she's going to be wheeling us around the nursing home. It really doesn't matter. But nonetheless, 
What's your view of marriage? So let's, let's begin uh, as we jump into a biblical foundation. I want to kind of lay some background there, but I want to, before we jump into what a marriage is, like, is supposed to be like, and I, I want to spend some time in the weeks to come in a, in a dangerous book that you're really not supposed to read if you're single um, or under the age of 18, um, and, and it's called Song of Solomon. And we're going to just hit a couple highlights in there of this beautiful romance story and have a healthy discussion about how we can inform our marriages biblically. But if we're going to do that, we need to begin with the foundation of God's plan for marriage, and that begins in Genesis chapter 1. And so God created man in his image. Man and women were equal image bearers of God. Equal image bearers of God. In other words, they could reproduce. God you know, made um, his creation. They could reproduce. They could have dominion over his creation. He created them both to work and to have leisure, to, to recreate and to create in, in work and leisure. They shared God's character, they, some of the conditions of, or the characteristics of God, that he was sensitive, sensitivity of God, the integrity of God, the tenderness of God, the strength of God, their caring, unconditional love, honesty, faithfulness, patience, kindness, gentleness, authentic, uh, authenticity, forgiveness, approachability, and so on. Those are some of the the, the characteristics of God that image bearers of God possess. And then, and then beyond that, men and women are equal in essence. Men and women are equal in essence. I mentioned a moment ago there's distinctions, yes, and we'll talk about that more in a moment, but they're equal in essence, in their nature. How is so? Well, this gives you know, all persons, men and women, they, they all have dignity and worth and value. There's not superiority of genders, okay? Uh, there's not superiority. It, there's, there's an equality there of dignity, worth, and value. God makes no distinction or value of worth between genders. And so they're equal in essence. And that's critical as a starting point to understand. Uh, but the, the next issue is to understand that not only are they equal in essence, but they're also distinct in their gender roles. Men and women are different like uh, Beauty and the Beast, are different. I, I saw there's a new version of that coming out, um, and that that's that's appropriate because that there's a distinction between men and women. You just look at First uh, Peter chapter three verse seven talks about uh, to husbands that they are to live with their wife in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel. Is that a degrading statement against women? No, it's not. It's just generally speaking, uh, men are kind of like burlap sacks and women a little more like silk fine silk okay um you know you don't fill up a bag of uh you know of a silk bag with potatoes okay you put delicate special things in a in a bag of silk and and um and you know burlap whatever you can just you know you're not going to wear it and you don't really want to it's not very comfortable but you can you know put some potatoes in it or maybe or coal or whatever you know it's it's functional i mean it, it but it's not very beautiful or comfortable or attract you know it's and that's men and yeah you know what but um that also you might look at the difference between a uh stanley you know thermos coffee mug right you know i mean you can have it on the work site you can fall and you know and the lid's on good and dump truck rise over it and you can pick it up and your coffee's still warm and it's still good functional as a vessel it's it does great it it, it holds liquids you can drink from it it stores and whatever but then you have a teacup by contrast which is a weaker vessel is it not but is it a devalued vessel? Actually, it would arguably be a little more valuable and a little more delicate. There's a book written one time that men are buffaloes and women are butterflies. You know, and, and a buffalo is a big, burly, just 
dumb creature, right? And then a butterfly, delicate, beautiful, flying around. And if, if, a, if a butterfly lands on the buffalo, the buffalo might not even notice. If a pebble drops on the buffalo, the buffalo won't notice. But if a pebble hits the, the, the butterfly, it could hurt, you know, or at least, uh, you know, there could be some emotional ramifications, right? And if the buffalo steps on the butterfly, you know, there's going to be a problem right there, okay? And so uh, any of you that have spent time with the opposite, you know, you know, and certainly in a marriage, there's a difference, right? There's a difference. And that's what he's referring to. It's not devaluing, it's just the way God has wired and made us. And so generally speaking, men are stronger than women. That, that is true. Uh, the first bride did not come from the ground as Adam and the other animals God created, but she came from his side. The woman was not to lead the man, as feminism would suggest, or dominate him, or walk behind him, as chauvinism would suggest, but she was to be safely beside him, complementing and completing her husband. In fact, I would say that, uh, and our church would hold, that we believe in a complementarian role in marriage, that marriage is to be a complementary, kind of like a simply. Uh, uh, symbiotic relationship in biology okay this equal partnership stuff is is not biblical the man being the leader and dominating his wife not biblical the wife staking her claim and her rights and fighting back and she's in charge is not biblical a complementarian role would be a healthier view and it's just true even in biology biology symbiotic relationships where you have two creatures that 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 benefit from one another and yet they're distinct like you might have the big fish that has bacteria in its gills i don't know the name of it but um but it can't breathe because of the bacteria and there's a little fish that likes to eat that bacteria and literally swims in and out of the mouth in the gills of the big fish and is able to clean and filter that bacteria out and so the little fish has a better life because it has a constant food source and the big fish has a better life because it can breathe because of the little fish. And so there's a symbiotic relationship where they, they, they're better together than they would be apart. And that's the truth about, uh, about our marriages too. God has designed us to need each other and that complementarian role of husbands and wives is a, is a beautiful, distinct picture of even how the Trinity works that god the father god the son god the holy spirit are equal in essence and nature and yet distinct in roles and voluntarily submit to the different roles none of them makes the other one do anything but perfectly they default to one another in a way that is just beautiful and it's a great picture for us in the home and in our marriages distinct roles of a man he serves he initiates he protects he provides he involves He's strong. He decides. And the distinct roles of a woman, she follows, she responds, she receives, supports, assists, nurtures. Aubrey Malfers uh, mentions those lists. Uh, John Piper said this of men, at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. Then he goes on to say of women that at the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. 
Now, I don't expect to be able to exhaust all of the difference of the roles and, and get into the, all of that. That's Ephesians 5 stuff, and, and we, um, maybe we'll get to that a little more in the future um, weeks here. But, but I just want you to see it, a big picture view of some of the distinctions. And then if you were to jump into Genesis chapter 2, verses nine through, through, uh, 7 through 9, I want to I just look at, at the beginning of this. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, God creates heaven and earth, and then you have the six days of creation. The pinnacle of his creation is on the sixth day, and he kind of gives a snapshot of the overview of his creation. And then in chapter 2, he zooms in to give you a little more detail of what happened on that sixth day. I do not believe it's a separate creation story. I think it's the same one in a little more detail, a little more uh, high definition. And so that's what we're looking at in verse 7. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and a man became a living creature and the lord god planted a garden in eden in the east there he put a man whom he had formed and out of the ground the lord made god made to spring up every tree that is pleasant the sight and food and good for food and the tree of life was in the middle center of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil verse 15 the lord God took man and put him in the garden to work and to keep it. So a couple things to know about God's um, intention for man in Genesis 2. He creates Adam from the ground. And then he gives them a work to do. I want you to cultivate the ground I have placed you in. I want you to cultivate it. I want you to protect it. You're going to work it. You're going you're to keep it. You're going you're to take care of it. Don't squander it. Don't abuse it. You are steward over creation. That's an important principle. It even affects how we give and, and how we... What we do with our resources, everything you have is a gift from God that's been given to you to um, steward and to work and to keep. And so also it's interesting to know that work was there before the fall. That's the next chapter. So work is not in and of itself a consequence of sin. The thorns and the sweat that comes with work is the consequence of sin. But work uh, to do, cultivate the garden. And then secondly... He had a will to obey. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You're going to die. So I, I'm going to give you a will that you can do anything. You can enjoy this beautiful creation I've given you. And we're going to enjoy a close relationship. And we'll walk and hang out in the garden. And we're going to have um, this awesome relationship. But there's only just one thing. Just one one little thing just don't eat of the one tree every other tree eat enjoy cultivate have a great time with this one tree stay away from that tree every other tree no problem one tree not to eat bazillion other trees enjoy one tree don't eat will to do only one thing to do and obviously he was unable to keep up with that um, he did not obey the father he doubted what god had said but then verse 18 then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Uh, the, the word helper is the same word we get in the Greek version of it is paraclete, which is the Holy Spirit. So there wasn't somebody to come beside him to be a helper, comforter, um, encouragement to him. Verse 21. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib from the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Ye shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Many have said she shall be called woe, man, because she was taken. But it really, biblically, that wasn't the word. It was ish and isha. Um, she shall be called isha, is what he really said in the Hebrew, uh, because she was taken from man. And that is the moment where God creates and gifts him with this woman. It's worth making this note. When God created Eve for him, she was undoubtedly, she was by far the most beautiful, amazing, wonderful woman he had ever met. I mean, she was the, the most beautiful woman. And when he, she was by far his standard of beauty. And God to this day has intended that marriage would work that way, that the, that the wife is the standard of beauty for the husband and the husband is the standard of studliness for the wife that that it's not about Adam. Adam wasn't given a lineup of, you know, and then God took all of his ribs, chopped them up and then gave him, you know, 16 different women to pick from different sizes, different heights, different, whatever, different color hair. We just pick the one you want the best. I like that one. Isha, you know, no, he gave him one and she was amazing. And he, and she was the best one. And again, we can look culturally how standards of beauty have changed through the years and what's attractive in one culture is not necessarily attractive in another culture or another time or another whatever. So understand biblically a little principle, side note for free. Uh, maybe we'll get into that more in Song of Solomon. But, uh, but that was one of the principles there. But the bottom line is this, that he had a woman to protect. And then God creates Eve from Adam. But then chapter 3 comes along. And things don't go so well. What we find in chapter 3, and just in a quick overview, we have God's original gift of marriage. Uh, and in God's original gift for marriage in chapter 2 is that the man and his wife are without coverings. Okay, so they are without clothing and they yet feel no shame. There's no sin. There's nothing inappropriate. There's nothing wrong. They're completely pure in their love, in their view of one another, their enjoyment of one another, enjoyment of God. Everything is perfect as God has intended it to be. And there's no shame. And they felt they had intimacy with one another. They have vulnerability. They had no guilt. They had no shame. That's God's original intent for humanity, but much less for most, more specifically for marriage. But what happens is, you know, they eat the fruit and the fall happens. And so marriage after the fall, when we see it, they immediately, they go, and I would encourage you to read the passage, they go and they hide, okay? And, and in hiding from God, we, we see the first result of their rebellion, sin, and sin fractures and devastates the relationship Adam and Eve had with each other, and more importantly, their relationship with God. And so after the fall, we find them hiding from God. And they're trying to construct coverings for themselves to cover their nakedness and their shame. In fact, that's when God um, finds them as if he couldn't find them. He knew where they were, but he didn't, they didn't know where they were. And that was that they were separated from him. And so he says, hey, where you at? And they speak up. And then they begin blaming each other. Well, this woman you gave me. And then she says, well, the serpent, he came and talked to me. And then and everybody's pushing the blame. And so that's a whole nother thing there. But in that moment, we begin to see things unravel. And suddenly there's shame. There's nakedness. There's, there's guilt. 
And there's a fracture, devastating fracture in their relationship with each other and with God as they blame each other. And then they fight to rule over each other. And so one of the consequences of sin in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, I want you to see this. When God brings a judgment upon the serpent and then upon the man and upon the woman. Interestingly enough, what he says to the woman, he says in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That word for desire means that your desire will be to overtake him. In the same way that in chapter 4, God says sin is crouching at your door and is wanting to overtake you, Cain. And in the same way that sin wants to devour Cain and cause him to, to act upon his bitterness and his anger to kill his brother, which happens, in the same way wives are going to desire their husbands. That's not like a, a commercial at the Super Bowl, desiring your husband one of those commercials. Uh, this is a, he, she's going to want to conquer and dominate him. And I don't know if you have ever been driving and two people were trying to work the steering wheel at the same time, but it won't, it doesn't go well, right? And so when two people are trying to steer uh, their lives together and one's trying to dominate the other one, and yet God is intended for the other one to have headship and responsibility and to be the primary uh, or to be the leader, the default leader in that relationship. There's going to be conflict. And so that's what we find after the fall. We find that there's this disconnect. And, and so what we say, well, what, what about today? Well, today we have the same exact problem. We find severed relationships. We find struggles for power in the home, the struggles for my needs to be met in the me marriage and my goals and my aspirations and my preconceptions. My expectations are more important than your expectation. My needs are more important than your need. And that's what we find in marriages today. We find power struggles in the home. We find blaming. We find self-centered, conditional love. I will love you as long as you, instead of I love you regardless we find shame, we find guilt. Let me bring you back to that quote by C.J. Mahaney. He says again, the key question is this, will we approach marriage from a God-centered view of man? A God-centered view of man or a man-centered, uh, a man-centered view? Will we maintain our marriage as long as our earthly comforts, desires, and ex- expectations are met. In a God-centered view, we preserve our marriage because it brings glory to God, points a sinful world to a reconciling creator. and points a, a sinful world to a reconciling creator. God can use, I want you to understand this, God can use the challenges, the joys, the struggles, the celebrations of marriage to draw you closer to himself and to grow you in your Christ likeness. God will use, wants to use, I believe has purpose marriage for that purpose to conform you, to be part of his process of reconciling you to himself and more importantly to, uh, to another person. One person said the first purpose of marriage beyond happiness, sexual expression, the bearing of children, companionship, mutual care and provision, or anything else was simply this. It was to please God, to glorify God. But yet the me marriage will never do that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says this. 
And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We're demonstrating in our marriages and in our relationships in general the death of Jesus when we die to self-preservation and to the flesh and we live to Christ. Philippians says that we are crucified with Christ. I'm crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. Now Jesus Christ lives in me and the life I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the one who's called me and has saved me. 2 Corinthians 4, 10 through 11 says, always carrying, carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. If we want to have a God-honoring, healthy marriage, we're going to have to crucify the me in our marriages. You're going to have to crucify the me in our marriages. If we're going to have healthy relationships, even as we talked about in the last several weeks, in the body of Christ, this is true in all of them, but no relationship is more intimate, more vulnerable, more delicate than that, and more precious before God than the covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. Much more true there, but true in all of our relationships. But we are to carry in our bodies the death of Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 4.10, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies for we who live are always being given over to death for jesus sake so that the life of jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh and that's the question for this morning is the life of christ evident in your life is the life of christ evident in your life men is the life of christ evident in 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 your life specifically uh, gary thomas made this question and, and I, i'm finished with this thought he, he raised this question. One day it occurred to him that the greatest picture of marriage, uh, his role was um, if, if, if the picture of marriage is Christ and his marriage to his bride, the church. And he is called to love his, his wife like Christ loves the church. When she looks at him, does she see a re- resemblance to Jesus? Incredibly convicting thought. When your wife looks at you, does she see a resemblance to at least a kind of a family resemblance, that may be distant, but nonetheless there's a connection there, right, uh, with, with Jesus. Or is there a complete disconnect there? Maybe the, the confusion in our culture and the way that people view marriages and all of the misunderstandings, maybe, would it be possible that, that uh, things wouldn't be quite so bad if liberal... Um, feminists and and cultural people that are so angry about gender roles and whatever what if they could actually look at evangelical professing christian marriages and say i don't agree with their choices and their definitions but i do have to say this and those men love their wives well man they love their wife they cherish their they serve their wives they die for their wives but when the world looks in i'm not going to waste time to even tell you the stereotypes of what they say about evangelical men and how they treat their wives but i can tell you this the husbands don't have a resemblance to jesus 
And so if we're going to restore marriage, if we're going to get back to what God has called us to be, we're going to have to go back to some foundational definitions and we're going to have to get rid of the world's views. I can assure you the world has not come up with a solution that is better than God's original content. And that begins with us as Christian men and women that we begin to die to ourselves, that Christ's life might live in us and that we could be a picture of reconciliation in our marriages, in the body of Christ, in our relationships so that Jesus would be more vividly seen in our lives and the me life would be crucified and dead where it belongs. Let's pray.